Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Theological Awareness, Part 2. Many times when I talk about the church fathers, people raise an eyebrow. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's like, it's... The, the church fathers really are sometimes mislabeled as being uh, old patriarchal, home, uh, you know, uh, misogynist and sexist and, and all sorts of things and uh, anti-Semitic. And I'm like, did you actually read he's like no no but i i heard that you know saint john chrysostom was anti-semitic uh okay did you actually read it no no i didn't read it. and we just assume that what we heard is true we take the summary of a summary of a summary uh hearsay and we make these value judgments these sweeping generali- generalizations and uh, the 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 kind of uh, idea that i read the bible and then I interpret it through the question of what does this verse mean to me? What does this passage mean to me? Like you're mentioning, I become the final arbiter. I decide what it means. What does it mean to me? How do I want to apply this? Right. And the church n- never uh, agreed with, with this thought, with this approach, of course. St. Irenaeus talks about the Bible being the exclusive property of the church. The interpretation of the Bible belongs in the church. Outside of the church, it's mere book. It's mere story. It's not the kerygma. It's not the witness of the apostles. It's just a story. Inside the church, within the bounds of tradition, it becomes the witness of the apostles. In it, you don't read about Christ. You encounter Christ. You encounter the resurrected Christ. And you can only do this through tradition. If you do it on your own, if you try to kind of read it and interpret it for yourself and, and see what it means to me, you're bound to come up with subjective interpretations. You're bound to come up with things that are going to be comfortable, things that are not going to challenge you, things that are not going to uh, stand uh, between you and whatever sinful behavior, whatever difficult thing you you are required to do you're you're it's only going to be comfortable yeah and 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 it's you know you mentioned where we read the bible the appropriate place and it is within the church community and 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 with you know everyone involved the the clergy and the laity because if if we and like you said the tradition and for a lot of our listeners they're like no we just need the bible alone well tradition's not what you think it means it's not an extra set of teachings that's outside of the Bible, but it's like the received life of the church through the ages. So, you know, a lot of people get deceived when they take, let's say, a religious studies class and, you know, their teachers do gymnastics with the text and demonstrate that it means something totally different than what people thought it meant. But the right place of reception for the Bible was in the church community. It's like I said, the authors and the audience, you can't understand a text without the audience. 
it's not like people write like today people you know post stuff on the internet and someone happens to come across it by chance because everyone's idle and you know you know clicking on hyperlinked documents that's not how reading worked in the and up until you know 10 years ago maybe 15 at most hyperlinks were not common in the past it's even when the internet came out you know reading was a self-contained entity now it's you know you go to wikipedia a lot of people do theology through wikipedia and google we'll address that in a second but you just click on the hyperlinks like non-stop and you can go for hours and then we think we're learning theology that way and we're not we're reading in a very fragmented way and forming ideas that can then affect our practice. So, I mean, what do you think about that? You know, my priest calls, um, calls, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving him credit, you know, Uncle Google. We go to Uncle Google to get our answers. It's like, you know, a lot of people used to go to priests. Now, no, I'm not going to bother him. I'm just going to Google it. And like, Google's just a whole bunch of results that people click on. What have you seen with that? Is, do you see a lot of danger? Is, do you have to do a lot of cleanup work when when people decide to do theology by the internet? Absolutely. And it's unfortunate because people are well-intentioned. They, they want to do the right thing. They want to get to the answer. But um, uh, like the example, the word you just used, the Bible alone, the Bible alone is actually a doctrine in Western churches and certain Western churches that believe that the Bible alone in, uh, uh, in exclusion to anything else, uh, any, any sort of tradition is the source of our faith. And for us Orthodox, the Bible is part of our tradition is part of that tradition that uh, we were handed down hmm. from generation to generation to understand and to learn and to experience and encounter our faith and we can we as orthodox can say no we don't believe in the bible alone we believe that the tradition and by the way the word tradition like you mentioned so that there's no uh, uh, confusion it's not a, a, a set of books it's the life of the church and we use the tradition as a, a noun and as a verb because every person is tradition or shaped by tradition to become orthodox and people can agree and say, you know what, it's not Bible alone that I, be I believe in tradition. But practically speaking, effectively speaking, you ask a person, what does this verse mean? Uh, it doesn't matter if clergy or laity. I, I, see, I see both falling into this issue. They would interpret the verse right away from their mind without any sort of reference, without going back to tradition. And unfortunately, when we Google questions about our faith, we find a whole host of answers to the same question, answers that fall on a wide range. And how do I select which answer fits, not just with me, with what I like, with my taste, with my preferences, with modern sensibilities, you know, uh, to kind of uh, summarize it, but which one do I pick? Well, if I'm disconnected from tradition, I'm going to pick the one that I like. And every person is going to pick the one they like. And we're all going to end up with different answers. And each one of those answers, like we don't know, but it, it's actually coming from a tradition. It's, it has a background. It has a backstory. And without knowing that backstory and how it relates to my tradition, whether it fits, whether it doesn't fit, I'm going to take that quick answer that I got from Google, from Wikipedia, and I'm going to defend it to the death. And I've seen people on, um, on forums online 
discussing things back very heatedly. They have very strongly held opinions that are not grounded in, in the tradition whatsoever. And they're defending it because it makes sense to them, not because it's, it's rooted in the tradition of their faith, not because it's supported by centuries of the work of theologians. It's not supported by the life of the church. It's basically because it makes sense to them. They like it. So they support it. And not just they support it, they denounce all others who do not support it. All yeah. others are heretics. All others are bad people because they don't support this one answer. And that's the danger, really, of Googling uh, questions, that we, we get these quick answers and we hold on to them and we attack other people who don't hold on to them. Why? Because it's, it makes sense to me. And people do that all the time, too, with, um, with other things, like specifically with when they're sick. You know, Google my symptoms. What do I have? Oh, my gosh. I didn't know I'm dying. <laughs> it's, people don't understand that. Google can never get you to understanding unless you have a background. And that's what the doctor has that people who Google their symptoms don't have. They have the context and the training and the background to be able to interpret what they're seeing on Google. So, yeah, I mean, you get certain symptoms, and in some cases, they mean certain death. And in your case, so, oh, um, you probably just contracted an infection um, that can be solved with antibiotics over three to five days because they, they ask the right questions, they have the right background, and we can never get that. And again, it's the approach. We, we think everything, we get it in bits and pieces. We're, we're like, we think we're computers, information processing machines. And if you turn it in, you know, we'll have understanding. And it's, it's, it's that approach is so dangerous, not only like on a um, on level of knowledge, but on a practical level too. Because imagine people who are sick and, and I see this trend, it's actually very scary among doctors. You know, a, a patient will go, I Google my symptoms. Can you give me this medicine? And they'll give it to them. And it's, it's, they're harming themselves because they think they know it all and the doctor's just a dispensary. Forget the authority and the knowledge that the doctor has in his field. So the same's true with theology. It's, yeah, we can Google an answer, but we don't know how to interpret it because we don't have the right backgrounds. And, you know, like you said, we can end up making it a, a issue of orthodoxy or heresy, and I'm the heretic hunter, and I'm gonna I'm gonna teach those heretics a lesson. <laughs> exactly. And actually, we some people do get the wrong impression when they come in in church, and the way they see the Bible used in the church is that it's broken up in bits and pieces. So we have the lectionary, and we have all of these bits and pieces, uh, a little bit. <clears throat> for uh, a psalm and a gospel, and then the Pauline and then Catholic and, and uh, Acts, and then again, the, a psalm and a, and a gospel, and things are broken up. And when we go into Holy Week, then uh, we see, you know, uh, these things are all broken up again. And people maybe like inadvertently get the wrong impression that this is the, the right way to read the Bible, not that this is part of um, the the ritual and the rites of the church, but this is the right way I need to read the But actually, we need to read the Bible as a whole. When I read a little bit from Romans 12, I have no idea what St. Paul said before or after. I need to read the book of Romans as a book, 
in one sitting if I can. It's 16 chapters, sit down, read it. St. John Chrysostom used to read it once a week because of how valuable, how important it is. Mm. And this is the, the, the kind of problem that happens when we take a little bit and we read that, we take it out of context. And this is the problem that you're just mentioning. And with Google, everything is decontextualized, right? And this for sure leads you to uh, a wrong understanding. It may lead you to a partial understanding, but this is more, more dangerous than having no answer to the question. Because when you have no answer to the question, you're still seeking an answer. But when you have a partial answer, you feel satisfied. I've reached something. And you stop there and you assume this is it. This is all there is. Yeah, and and it's 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 so harmful. And I, I think of it, you know, I'm not thinking only like a person reading because a lot of people are like, well, I, I've never dealt with that. I've seen what it can do in families. You know, a, a teenage girl who's gifted in her thinking and she's sitting with her parents and siblings and she's now Googling everything and the parent doesn't have a way to answer because they're so impoverished with their readings and their, their, their delving into that collective life of the church, whether it's in the writings or in, in the liturgy. And even like you mentioned with the Bible, it's when we look at the readings carefully, we find that there are themes for the Sundays and that themes reflected in the gospel, the acts and the epistles and should be in the sermons. But what ends up happening, people listen to them piecemeal. Again, it's the approach. We haven't been trained to listen. And people think that this is what? Listening is a passive activity. And as you know, I teach language arts and we have actually a program to, to train kids to listen better. And their scores in the category of listening compared to reading, writing, and speaking, it's the lowest one. Can you imagine? It's the lowest score they get in their, their, the specific area of language arts is in listening. It's not in reading. It's right. not in, in, in writing. And it's, it's terrifying because it means, what it means is we can't process information carefully by listening. And it means that it has to be trained. So we train people. You're coming to the liturgy. We're going to have readings in this order. Why? Because every Sunday has a theme in the liturgy. So like you said, the, the Thomas Sunday, it's called Thomas Sunday because the reading in, 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 on that Sunday is the reading about Thomas um, doubting and meeting our, the risen Christ. And the sermon should address that. And a lot of the great writings we have from the early church are writings where the church fathers systematically addressed the books of the Bible. You know, they come in week after week and they're, you know, after four weeks, they've heard about, you know, the, the book of um, Colossians. After six weeks, if they attended every week, they've heard uh, other books and they get the hearing and the explanation. And it's sad because those people didn't know how to read and they had the grasp of understanding and we know how to read and we don't know anything. And then we know how to read and we look at those people and say they didn't know anything. <laughs> so it's, it's an upside down world where, you know, the, the result is the same. We know everything. They know nothing. Whereas the reality is, we don't know. And those uneducated people did know because they were uneducated in writing. They were not uneducated in listening and using their minds and incorporating it into the faith. And even like we mentioned, the audience has a very big effect on the writings that the church fathers left us. And it shows you what the congregation wanted and needed because 
if you like, for example, you look at St. Basil's homilies or, or St. Um, or like St. Augustine's homilies, mm -hmm. they're not aggressive toward the congregation. And it means they really want to listen. They're open. But you look at St. John Chrysostom's, there's a bit of aggression in some of them because the people are not there except, you know, to, to pass time, to congratulate themselves. It's, it's unfortunately St. John Chrysostom's like the first who shows us what our modern life looks like where people decide, you know, sermons are nap time. And it's, it's I got to get my nap because I felt, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. So, and I, I see it. Like some people will set their internal clock We've got the liturgy of the word, then we've got a 15 minute nap, then we got the liturgy of the believers. <laughs> huh? So we can continue. Yeah. So power nap. And it's yeah. it's it's unfortunate because that's what leads to problems when, you know, people have questions. And I feel like a lot of the people who have questions, whether they're youth or young adults or even, you know, established adults, it's because they want a deeper integrated faith. And people confuse it. Oh, they're challenging our, the status of our tribe. And that's what it becomes. You know, without education, it's tribalism. And it's Christianity is not a tribe. It's like you said, it's Catholic. It's universal. Everyone's incorporated into it. And, it, and it's, it's, that's where I feel like people don't understand how important their roles are as laity, as lay members. Because if every person in a church reads that causes the priests and the, the pastoral ministry to address their development and continue developing them. Whereas, you know, today we see such superficial sermons and the repetitive and self-help masquerading as theology. And we see it in all the churches in the West. And it's because that's the only thing the congregation wants to hear. And that's where... It's kind of like pandering slash uh kind of like sell out uh to kind of make people feel a certain way like i want you to feel a certain way mm. i want you to feel good feel nice feel feel this feel you know yeah and it's it's that's the role of the audience they affect the type of message the author will give or at least the the topic they'll address maybe not the content but the topic and I want to mention two things. The first is that the early church had a very well-developed system of catechumenate. And there were sponsors, and it worked as a system. When we try to uh, function with part of the system disabled, the, meaning that we rely on uh, parents. Right now, when we baptize a, a baby, a child, the parents are responsible to raise the the child, to educate the child, to bring up the child in the fear of the Lord, to teach them about the faith, right? And we supplement this with Sunday school. And the Sunday school system, um, like you mentioned with, with um, like a bachelor's degree, it says this is the basic minimum that uh, you need to kind of, understand what's happening around you but it's certainly not sufficient it's not the end of the story it's not the last word and we need to kind of uh, reactivate part of the system that has atrophied another big 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 problem is that uh, and we we mentioned it briefly 
is coming to the Bible, coming to the tradition, coming to the fathers with an already formed opinion answer to the, of, the, of a question that I have. And then I go and pick and choose uh, verses, quotes by fathers, and uh, all of them to support my answer. So the answer to my question isn't what the tradition is saying. The answer to my question isn't what the fathers are saying, isn't necessarily what the Bible is saying. It's proof texting that um, I'm picking things to just support what I want to say. And no heretic in the history of Christianity uh, was free from this. Every heretic used the Bible to support their uh, argument, to support... Already formed opinion. Their already formed opinion, their teachings. There's a word called exegesis. Exegesis means your, your understanding and the method of interpreting what... Uh, what, what a verse is saying, what, what is uh, happening here. But there's a, the opposite word of that is eisegesis. Eisegesis means that I'm bringing in a certain meaning, a certain understanding, and, and pushing it on the verse, importing it into the reading. And um, a lot of the time, because we're not familiar with our heritage, with our tradition to the level that we ought to be, we make decisions um, certain decisions for certain questions, life decisions, life choices, and then we run back to the Bible and we say this: uh, these verses are supporting what I've decided. And we convince ourselves and try to convince others that this is what the Bible is actually saying. Jesus was uh, would have done this. Jesus would have done that. Jesus would have stood up for this. Jesus would have defended this. Jesus would have opposed that. But did I already form an opinion and just go back and run to the Bible just to kind of bolster up support to convince myself that, yes, Jesus approves of what I'm doing and what I've decided? Or did I take the time to learn and to build up my, my faith and my understanding of my faith? And then the, the answer organically comes out. It's uh, two different approaches. One is coming organic and one is forced. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, in psychology, there's a term for it. It's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. And it's, it's people are like, what? Yeah, it's, it's like well-known and it's the way it works is I have an opinion and I find evidence for it. But what's the antidote then? Can we ever know anything? Well, yeah, it's read the text in its own context. And context here doesn't mean read it whole. It also means, besides reading it whole, read it in light of the history and the culture and the audience that it was written to. Because that way, that's the antidote. Because if you do those steps, you'll come up with a meaning for the text, whether you like it or not. And if you don't like it, you're faced with a decision. <laughs> and it's, 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 and if, if, if you're in harmony with it, well, you've been doing things the right way. And, and, but if, you know, if we're going to try to come up with, you know, like, for example, the Religious Studies um, Academy in the Western world, they don't really approach the texts to understand them. They're coming up with their own philosophies about social justice, different groups of people, and using the religious texts as literature that they can try to read that into. And we know that's confirmation bias because they're not reading it contextually. They're, you know, saying, oh, um, this is what human nature is like. Let's see if the Bible shows that. And it's, it's well, wait a second. How do you know that human nature you're describing is universal? and that it works as context for the text. So it's, it's, 
you know, confirmation bias is so dangerous because it happens with believers and it happens with, with non-believers in it. Yeah, and it, we can't, we don't know how to arbitrate between the, the different opinions. So you mentioned religious studies. Uh, the approach, even though the word religion is in the title, religious studies approaches, um, I guess, religion from a different angle, from a different perspective, with a different set of assumptions and presuppositions. It doesn't look at the Bible, for example, when looking at Christianity, it doesn't look at the Bible as the word of God. It doesn't look at the Bible as the witness of the apostles. And, and it doesn't look at the Bible as uh, the salvation history. It doesn't look at the Bible in terms uh, of it being meaningful in, in the sense that um, Christians see it as meaningful. It looks at the Bible in another way. It looks at the Bible as a window to the past in order to study uh, the history of what people in the past believed, how they lived, how they interacted with one another. They look at social interactions and, and habits and customs. They analyze it for different purposes and in different ways, coming out with different results, but not in the service of uh, the faith, but in service more of art history, more of answering questions uh, about uh, historical development of certain customs, so certain cultural uh, beliefs. So we kind of need to be um, aware of our faith, of our tradition, well enough to be able to uh, benefit from religious studies books and and um, and articles and scholarship, um, I don't want to say that we need to kind of ignore them completely because there's some good work in there. But at the same time, in order for me to benefit from this work, I have to know where my position is first. I have to learn about my faith first. And um, if I'm not formed, if I'm not uh, um, discipled, if I'm not traditioned, and then I go and read something that is, um, you know, completely detached from faith, from uh, from uh, my tradition, and tries to present something as something completely uh, man-made, something completely uh, uh, atheist, then I'm I'm going to end up with confused results. My first starting point has always to be the tradition. This is where I need to start from. This is where I need to spend time, um, money, effort to educate myself. And then I can go off and learn a whole bunch of other uh, outlooks and perspectives. And this is very useful, very important, but not without having that first step taken first. Yeah, and like you said, the tradition, that's just the combination of context in which the Christian community uh, you know, wrote and read and lived the scriptures and like we said it's it's so many things we get from that early christian community we get the approach to different issues and that approach leads us to be able to process what we read differently and it's also the way that we live and specifically content we have content too in the readings that that addresses a lot of the issues that we have today and it's like honestly Every single issue that we have today in the West was addressed in great detail, except maybe the faith and science, but there's definitely a lot of the seeds for that in them. And it's, it's the only reason I say that is, you know, 
the science was not as advanced as it is today. And some of the questions that come up, but definitely just framing the issue, that approach is there too in the early church. So it's, it's all the human things, all the human issues about identity, personality, individuality, meaning, that's there. That's there in great detail. So it's, it's, it broadens the imagination, it broadens the vision, and it broadens the satisfaction and depth of life that we have. So with that said, let's say you get someone and maybe they're young, maybe they're in their 30s, 40s, you know, middle of their life uh, career, um, about to start a family, young family, and you're having a cup of uh, coffee with them and you're having a conversation and this topic comes up and they question whether they should study theology. So as a way to end this, what would you tell them? So the 30-second elevator pitch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I will um, I will let uh, the late Bishop Epiphanius answer that question. Uh, there's one quote here that I really like, and I'm going to read that. He said, you are, he's addressing the youth of the church. And he said, you are the future of the church, but we will be its history. Do not sit around and criticize wrongs with mere words. The wrongs will be fixed, and you are a generation filled with good things. Read, study, translate, learn. Our church is full of goodness that the West is continually learning from, and we are leaving our roots and heritage. Do not worry about the church, because you are the future of the church, and I am hopeful in your goodness. All this to say that uh, wherever there is curiosity, wherever there's intrigue, there's interest, wherever there are questions, you're going to find motivation for people to dig and to study. And all that is required maybe is a little bit of uh, watering, a little bit of encouragement. And we can certainly provide that for one another. We, can, we need to encourage one another to read, to study, to spend the time uh, learning about our faith, spend the time learning about our heritage. Uh, you mentioned in your last comment that there are great benefits to learning about our faith. And there's also a great danger of not doing that. And the danger is that we get carried away, swept away by any foreign doctrine, anything that sounds nice, anything that sounds uh, logical and makes sense to the individual. We can get carried away with all this stuff. But taking the time to learn, taking the time to uh, investigate, taking the time to discover our roots, our history, our heritage, means that I'm going to have deep foundation struck in, in rock that no matter what comes across, no matter what kind of questions, what kind of currents uh, take place around me, I'm deeply rooted in Christ. And I know that. And that gives me confidence. That gives me strength. That gives me the ability to not run away from questions, to not run away from discussions and confrontations and, and uh, not be shy about um, being found that I'm a Christian. I know that a few people are kind of try to avoid wearing any cross, anything that indicates their faith because they don't want people to ask them, not because they're ashamed of the faith, because they don't want to be drawn into conversations. 
They don't want to be drawn into discussions about their faith because they might be found lacking and they don't want that. They don't want to feel like they don't know or they don't have the answer. But guess what? This is not a weakness. To say, I don't know the answer to something is not a weakness. It's actually, it takes courage. It takes uh, character to be able to say that. I don't know the answer, but I, I will look and I will dig and I will learn and I will ask and investigate. Uh, obviously, we, we can never have the answers to all the questions, but the point isn't just about finding the answer. It's the process of looking. This is where we grow. The, the process of learning, this is where our character is built. So as long as I'm looking, as long as I'm seeking, I will find them. Those who knock, the, it will be open to them. And those who seek will find. Very, very good answer. So I hope um, you all enjoyed this today. Um, I know I did. And I, I thank Father Paul very much for coming on today. Um, it's been a very great discussion. And um, it challenged me too, you know, to think about things in a slightly different way and how to, how to, how to serve people better who are trying to enter into this, this very rich world of the early church and, and Orthodox Christian theology. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.